Greetings to you in the name of our risen Lord Jesus. Thank you for being here on a Monday night. God bless you. You know, you never know as a preacher in these sort of things. Uh, sometimes it's me and the pastor and maybe another person that gets paid for something, but uh, you know. Uh, thank you for coming. Thank you for the music. Liam, right? Thanks for coming to help us tonight. And Tanya, thank you. thinking about thanks for the song uh, it's your breath in our lungs yeah. so we pour out our praise I think we could do worse as followers of Jesus than living in the daily moment by moment awareness that every breath in and out is a gift of God Paul tells us in his majestic opening to, in his letter to the Colossian church when he's speaking of the supremacy of Christ, of Christ as the creator of all that is. And then he says that in Christ, all creation holds together. This is an embodied faith we live. It's not just in our head. It's not just something that we're getting ready for someday. It's in, the, it's in the very moment by moment living of our lives in this world that we express our faith in Christ. Last week um, in one of our classes at Nazarene Theological Seminary, I was asked by the professor to come in and talk to the class because it was on worship. And I started out in ministry as a song leader. That's what we called it in those days. Minister of music then. We got sophisticated with it a little later. And their question to me was, could you please connect doctrine of the Trinity with our understanding of worship? Don't you love what seminary students can come up with? So I said, sure. I think it's like this. If we think about Trinity, I mean, that's kind of a mysterious, majestic sort of doctrine. It's a core doctrine that we believe. I alluded to it the other day. But if we really do believe that Father, Son, and Spirit live together, exist together in this perfect, holy community of love, and out of that perfect community of love flows everything we know, everything we are, and way beyond that, all that we don't know, that life itself flows out of that. And so what it means to worship can never be reduced to, well, what will the people like? What do the people prefer? Or even worse, what do I like? What do I prefer? That just sets worship on its head, <laughs> upside down, backwards. Because worship at the heart means we are being invited into something that already exists. We're being invited into, drawn up into the very life of God to participate in that holy community. That's why that breath song means so much to me because God inhales us, if you will, <laughs> into God's very life and that's where we're restored and renewed and forgiven and redeemed and made to know that we are God's chosen people and that even in itself is not for itself because then we're breathed out, exhaled, into the world, why? As living signs 
of the good news that God means to redeem all things to himself. And did you ever notice how often breath shows up in scripture? I mean, at the very beginning, there's creation. God creates everything that is. God creates the animals. God creates even this crowning achievement, this Adam. But when it really changes is when God goes and the breath of life is given. Or do you remember the story in Ezekiel when there's this valley of dry bones that images the dead, disobedient people of God? (laughs) And God says to the prophet, prophesy to the bones that they'll come back together and find life. And he does, and they all come back together. But that's not the end of it because then God says, now prophesy to the breath. And it's when the breath of God comes that things really change for Israel. Or I think about the risen Jesus on the very day of resurrection when he suddenly shows up in a room of his scared, frightened disciples who think life is over. And John says, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And then they were compelled, the doors were blown off. They were compelled out into the world and because they were, here we are. And then of course on the day of Pentecost, remember? when the faithful are gathered in an upper room waiting in obedience and suddenly the breath of God. Why am I saying that to you? Because me being here and the words I say mean nothing without the breath of God. And so what we're leaning into in these days is certainly not the words of a preacher, not even simply the words of scripture, although scripture is our foundation, but we're leaning into the very life-giving breath of the one who's trying to draw us up into the life of God to be restored and renewed, why? Not just for our own enjoyment, it's not what this is about, but so that we can be breathed out into an anxious, hurting, broken world as people of goodness. I don't know about you, but to me, that's worth signing on for. That's worth coming out on a Monday night to Spiritual Deepening Week for, right there just the possibility that we might be included in that grand project of God's. So, we're trying to think about it in these terms, the life that we were meant to live. And I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Mark tonight, Gospel of Mark chapter eight as we open the text. Thinking about the life you were meant to live. And and the big picture in this, I'll just remind you, is just this idea that there really is enough power in the death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ to totally change our lives, (laughs) to transform everything. That Jesus didn't just die on the cross for our sins just to secure for us a someday heaven. Oh, that's a part of it. Sure it is. Of course it is. Thanks be to God. But that's not, that's not it. We don't just sit by. We didn't just come here, punch our ticket to heaven just so someday we can get beamed up. No, God means to redeem all things to himself and we're a part of that grand project. 
And so that's a part of the life we are meant to live. So we're trying to hear from some of these key texts that speak to us about that, and this is one. So Mark chapter eight, and we're gonna begin the reading down at verse 31. Verse 31 is where we're gonna start. Somebody asked me, by the way, and yeah, feel free. Please, uh, if, as you're able, stand with me as we hear together the word of the Lord. I'm reading, by the way, from uh, the New Living Translation. And so if it phrases a little differently than what you have before you, that's why. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Jesus began to tell them that he, the son of man, would suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the leaders, the leading priests, the teachers of the religious law. He would be killed and three days later, he would rise again. And as he talked about this openly with his disciples, Peter took him aside and told him he shouldn't say things like that. Jesus turned and looked at his disciples and then he said to Peter very sternly, get away from me, Satan. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Well, then he called his disciples and the crowds to come over and listen. And he said, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must put aside your selfish ambition, shoulder your cross, and follow me. If you try to keep your life for yourself, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, there you'll find true life. And how do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul in the process, is there anything worth more than your soul? If a person is ashamed of me and my message in these adulterous and sinful days, I, the Son of Man, will be ashamed of that person when I return in the glory of my Father with the holy angels. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, Peter must have thought that he was on top of the world. He was a rather excitable sort anyway, but his emotions had to be just nearly at their peak right here. It had been an amazing, if short, journey toward this climactic moment. The Jesus movement turned out to be more exciting than he would have ever imagined. I mean, there's just no way he could have really been prepared for how utterly knocked down powerful his association with Jesus would become. You think about all that's already happened in the space of just, I don't know, a couple years or so maybe. Hundreds of people, we hear this, we read these stories all through the gospel accounts, hundreds of people with more ailments than you could even list healed before his very eyes. I mean, leprosy, lameness, blindness, paralysis, gone with a word, a touch, and walking on water, (laughs) And feeding thousands from a little boy's sack lunch? Peter lived in an almost constant state of breathlessness, never sure what he was going to experience next. When we come into this part of Mark's gospel, Jesus and the disciples are on a road trip. 
this time up north to Caesarea Philippi, not downtown, but the surrounding villages. Lots of talk on the way, as usual. But this time, at this point in Mark's gospel, and Mark chapter eight is a key turning point in the gospel of Mark, this time the conversation takes on a different mood. Jesus is becoming, well, we heard it, a lot more confrontational than he's been in his speech about their mission, about why he's come, about why it is all this amazing stuff is happening. And so the disciples get to thinking, well, he's looking for some feedback on the mission, on the ministry. That's what he wants to know. He wants to know what the polls are saying, the public opinion about his identity and his purpose. Who do people say that I am? He asked them. And they had answers. Any staff worth their salt would have answers even if they had to make it up. So they, they blurt out, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah come back. Others say one of the prophets has come back to do these signs and wonders. They, they were right. The public opinion about Jesus was as variegated as all of that and more. But then Jesus asked the question. The question they wouldn't forget for the rest of their lives. But what about you? Who do you say I am? This was the moment. This was an opportunity for them to bear their souls to Jesus, to let their motives lie exposed. And, and I can, I don't know how you think about this, I can just see all the disciples catching a quick glance toward Peter as the question falls heavy on all their ears, Peter always seemed to find him, or not always, but often seemed to find himself in the spokesman role. I, I suspect many of them knew kind of what they would like to say, what they wanted to say, but did they dare speak it out loud? They'd never said it out loud. Could it be true? They, they lived in the hope for so long could it really be that the one before them that they knew so well named Jesus, they knew where he grew up, they knew about, could, could this one who in so many ways seems so much like them, could it really be that this is God's Messiah? Peter had made up his mind and so in characteristic boldness, he speaks the words, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. He nailed it. It was the $64,000 question, and he won. And according to Matthew's gospel, Jesus blessed him for his answer. That's why Peter was on top of the world. He'd made every right move to this point. This thing was shaping up to be the opportunity of a lifetime. I'm telling you, the kingdom is coming, and Peter's pretty sure he's bagged a corner office. But he was yet to learn that whenever you call another Christ, you give up the right to define what Christ means. Before the adrenaline could even stop coursing through his veins, the rug gets pulled right out from under his feet. 
And Peter's dream world comes crashing down because Jesus has more to say. Seizing the opportunity. Perhaps hoping that this little group of his would be open to learn finally some, some deeper new things about the real nature of kingdom work. He'd been alluding to it. He'd been trying to get them to see it. He'd been dropping hints all along the way, but they just couldn't. They just couldn't. They'd been so shaped by their religion. They'd been so shaped by their culture. It's just all they could see. But Jesus thought maybe, maybe in this moment. So he began to teach them. He began, n- nothing, uh, nothing vague now. Clear. This is what's going to happen. This is what it means for him to be the Messiah. No parables now. It's bullets, straight shooting. Not much room for misunderstanding here. Because Jesus knew he had to confront a lot of faulty understanding about Messiah. And it affected these guys, including Peter. Do you, you remember what I'm talking about? Do you remember the popular uh, Messiah profile that these folk would have had? When they thought about Messiah, when Messiah would come to finally deliver God's chosen people, it would be nationalistic deliverer, political reformer, military conqueror, put Israel on the map, Make Israel great again. Well, I don't know. It could have been. And if he was going to be that kind of a leader, if Messiah was going to be that kind of a leader, then you know what it would mean for Messiah's friends. Jobs for everybody. Power. Position. Prestige. So, Jesus begins to teach them of what it actually means for the Son of Man to give himself to this role. And it means he must suffer and be rejected by the very ones that he came to minister to. That he would be killed and after three days rise again. They never seemed to quite hear that part. And I love how the translation I shared with you put it. (laughs) Peter took Jesus aside and told him he just really ought not to say things like that. Don't you just want to say, Peter, no, don't say that. No, Peter, that's not not what you want to say. He he just couldn't handle the way Jesus was talking. This is not Messiah talk. This is crazy talk. Better straighten Jesus out now. He's been out in the sun too long. Peter knows the answers. It's not all that difficult. He's been taught these things from his childhood. Why can't Jesus get it right? They all know it. And how quickly Peter goes then from receiving commendation to receiving condemnation when Jesus sees the disciples begin to waver, wonder what to really believe that's when he turns to Peter and rebukes him. These are strong words, hard words, the kind of things spoken to demons to put them in their place. Get behind me, Satan. You have no idea how God works, he said. 
And with one swift move, Jesus lays bare the motives of these followers. Why are they really interested in him? Why are they really interested in this kingdom? Were they really saying, thy kingdom come? Or were they saying, my kingdom come? What Peter forgot is that when you are a disciple, when you're a disciple, your role is not to guide or protect or possess Jesus in any way. Your role is to follow. And that's essentially what Jesus is reminding Peter of here. Notice, Peter, or Jesus does not say to Peter, this is important, Jesus does not say to Peter, get lost. No. Just, Peter, get in line. Follow. Get behind me. Follow me. The invitation to follow Jesus that was first extended to Peter by a sunny seashore is now redefined in the shadow of the cross. Jesus draws his followers close around him and in very serious tones lays it all on the line. It's probably the most basic principle of all. You die in order to live. Whoever wants to save their life, protect it, preserve it, you're just going to end up losing it all. But whoever is willing to lose their life, pour it out for the sake of the kingdom, you're going to gain everything. I know it's a crazy principle. It's upside down. It doesn't make any sense. You die in order to live? Really? It's contrary to every other message we, re- we receive from our culture of self-preservation. But this, dear friends, this is essential to ever being able to live the life you were meant to live. So the question tonight is a core question. Here it is. You ready? Hold on. It's a hard question. Are you a Christ follower? Don't answer too fast. Don't. Are you a Christ follower? You got to think this through. You gotta be, we got to be careful about our hearts around this question or we could find ourselves in a very similar place to where Peter found himself in this very moment. Do you identify yourself as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? You do? Good. That's wonderful. What does that mean to you? Why are you a Christian? Why? In the world, do you want to be a follower of Jesus? Is it to get into heaven? Is it just to get rid of some guilt? 
Is it to find some measure of peace in your life? Is it somehow to make life smoother, more enjoyable in some way? What is your motive for following Christ around? Who do you say he is? That's the question. Are you so serious about being part of God's kingdom that you're willing to let go? Give up. Give up your desire to secure your own life? Are you serious enough to give up your well-oiled, got-it-down-pat theology? Are you serious enough? Now, now I'm going to really mess with you, but I'm getting on a plane in a couple days, so it's okay. Are you serious enough to give up your job? I mean, some of us have been asked to do that, to follow Jesus. I'm not saying Jesus is going to ask you that. I'm just saying, is that, I mean, does it go that deep? Would you be willing to just disrupt life in order to stay in, in pace with Jesus and do what he's asking you to do, what, what, whatever it whatever it might be? I'll put it this way. Are you, are you dying to live? That's what this is about. You see, you just, you cannot be a follower of Jesus. You cannot be a disciple of Jesus unless we begin to take seriously the implications of the cross. That's what we're doing in these days that we call Lent. We're inviting the Holy Spirit to speak to us again about what it means to follow Jesus not only on the pathway to a good, joyful, happy life, and please don't mishear me, of course, life in Christ includes wonderful blessings of the fellowship that we enjoy together and the blessings of God and peace and all of, absolutely that's true, of course it's true. But I can never lose sight of the reality that I'm following Jesus there. Because as he said, unless a seed goes into the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. It's only in dying that life can come. That's where I'm following him. And sometimes on this journey, it's, it is. It's full of happiness and joy and blessing. It is. And sometimes... And sometimes it's full of suffering and heartache. And what's my response when that happens? Well, this Jesus thing ain't working out for me too well. You're not coming through for me the way he seems to be coming through for some other folk. <laughs> or, or can it be, by the grace of God, can it be Jesus I only hold together in you. I'm yours. Do with me as you will.
and I'm, I, I wanna, I'm here not out of any kind of superiority by any means. I'm a fellow traveler right along with you, but I'm just telling you, I've walked this journey long enough and been through enough of these kinds of experiences to know that coming to that place of complete release, surrender, even when you think surrender is going to mean the end of you, that's the place from which life emerges. <laughs> that's the place from which joy, real deep joy can emerge because in that place, you know what happens? The breath comes and breathes life into us at the deepest levels that even go beyond our description and explanation. We just know that we know that we know that we belong to him. And that no matter what life is dishing out to us, no matter what we are experiencing, he is holding us together. And what's true of each of us individually is true of us as a people too. I just suspect that following Jesus in this world as we know it today might get a whole lot difficult for us before it gets any easier as a people. Dear, dear loved ones in Christ, we gotta cling to Jesus and we've gotta cling to one another. This is no time for division over secondary things. The stakes are too high. Let's cling to Jesus. <laughs> And let's cling to one another. And in that, in that utter dependency, that complete full dependency on Christ and that dependency upon the body of Christ, that's where we have a chance to discover the life we were really meant to live. And it just is way better, you know, way better than iced tea and a stack of books on a beach. As good as that is, way better. Because the iced tea and the books on the beach, they, they, they have a tendency to go away. That ends, that comes to conclusion, that plays out. But this life, it never ends. It doesn't play out, it doesn't run out. In fact, it gets deeper, richer, <laughs> fuller there's a song like that but it's true well I, I know it would be simple it is simple for us to say to ourselves to one another uh, yes the kingdom of God is the most important thing in my life Jesus is Lord he's all I need we, we know how to say we know how to say the right things. But Lord Jesus, help me to see, help us as we gather here tonight to see what does our life really say in answer to that question. What is my, Lord, 
what does my schedule really say about that question? What does my, <laughs> what does my checkbook really say about whether or not I'm completely trusting in you? I wish this preacher would just sit down and be quiet. He's getting in deep water here. Jesus said it. Don't take it up with me. If you don't like what you're hearing, I'm not working alone up here, you know. These are the words of Jesus. What would it profit you to gain the whole world and lose your soul? I know you don't know me that well, but I, all I can do is just say to you, and I hope you sense it, I'm not saying this to you in this kind of way. I'm saying, oh, let's come before the Lord. <laughs> That's what this week is about. Saying, dear Jesus, show us, show us where we are in our lives, how we're going about this. And, and Lord, if you, if, you, if you want to put your finger on something in the way I'm going about life right now, that's really moving me away from following you, show me. And, and, and if you'll help me, Jesus, if you'll help me, I'll let it go and I'll come back into line with you. Jesus, if there's something in my life that doesn't look, sound, and act like you, show me. Would you join me in that prayer? Let's stand together. As is our custom on these nights, we're going to uh, reserve the sanctuary as a place of prayer tonight. So I encourage you to visit with one another, but I encourage you to visit one another in the lobby. And we'll keep this place as a place of prayer. If you want to kneel at the altar, in your pew, wherever you want to be comfortable, uh, we will... Um, maintain an attitude of prayer in here. Father, go with us now as we leave and continue to speak to our hearts. Don't allow us to escape the voice of your spirit. Give us grace to hear all that you say in the name of Christ. Amen.